Part three, chapter four of The Thread of Flame by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part three, chapter four. I did judge of it all through that spring, coming more and more to the conclusion that I was right. It was not the only occasion on which Mildred Averill and I talked the matter over, but it became at last a subject on which agreeing to differ seemed our only course. The time came when I remembered with an inward blush that I had once feared that this clear-eyed, well-poised girl, who had really found herself, might be in love with me. What her exact sentiment toward me was, I have never been able to name further than to put it under the head of a deep interest. Had circumstances been in our favour, that interest might at one time have ripened into something more. But from that she was saved by the instinct which told her that in spite of my assertions, as to which she nevertheless did charge me with untruth, I was a married man. One more detail I must add concerning her. On a Saturday afternoon in early May, I had gone to her to talk over the great news of the day, that the peace terms had been handed to the enemy at Versailles. It must be remembered that she was the one person, outside my colleagues in the museum, with whom I could discuss the topics nearest to my heart. With Pelly, Bridget, the Finn, and even with Miss Smith, I had friendly arguments as to the League of Nations and similar matters of public concern, but they rarely went beyond the catchwords of the newspapers. "'My dear father,' Miss Smith would say gently, "'who was an eminent oculist in his time—Dr. Smith, you may have heard of him—used to say that his policy was to keep this country out of entangling alliances.' That was his expression, "'entangling alliances.' "'I always think of it when I see foreigners.' "'For more I hear,' Bridget informed me, "'this here bleak nations they make so much talk about "'is only to help the English to oppress Ireland.' "'Will it bring down prices?' the Finn demanded, "'if ever I spoke of it with him. "'And when I confessed that I couldn't be sure that it would, "'he dismissed the theme with, "'Then that's all I want to know.' "'Punk, I call it,' was Peddy's verdict, "'unless Lloyd George is for it.' "'Whatever he says goes with me.' "'This being the scope of my conversations on the subject, "'it became a special pleasure to air my opinions with one who, "'while not always agreeing with me, "'took in such matters the same kind of interest as myself. "'We were, therefore, in what is called the thick of it, "'when a shuffling and laughing were heard from the hall. "'Suspending our remarks to look up in curiosity, "'we saw Lydia come in, leading drink-water.' From the festive note in their costumes, Miss Averill leaped to a conclusion. "'No!' she cried, as the two stood giggling sheepishly before her tea-table. "'You haven't!' "'We have.' The statement was his. "'I talked him into it,' Lydia declared laughingly. "'He didn't want to, but I was afraid that if I didn't tie him by the leg, he'd fly the coop.' "'But I asked, what about your great career?' "'Oh, well, I've put that off a bit. I can always take it up again.' "'Anyway, you never heard of an adventuress who wasn't married. "'She doesn't have to stay married. "'But a single woman who's an adventuress gets nowhere. "'The Russian countess in the Scarlet Sin has been married twice, first to a professor, that'd be Harry, and then to a count. "'I can begin looking forward to the count right now, "'because Harry is what you may call a thing of the past.' "'When they giggled themselves out again, "'to go and give the news to someone else, "'Miss Averill said wholeheartedly, "'Well, I'm glad.' "'Thinking of Vio and Stroud, I asked why. 
"'because Lydia is safe for a while, anyhow.' "'Didn't you think she was safe already?' "'Not wholly. There was someone.' "'Someone she liked?' "'No, someone she didn't like. That was the funny part of it. "'But about four or five months ago she came to me with so incoherent a tale "'that I couldn't make anything out of it. "'There was a man, a gentleman, she said he was, "'who wanted her to go off with him. "'And to save someone else she began to think she ought to do it. "'I really can't tell you what it was, because I couldn't get it straight. "'Only there was a wild, foolish, lovely idea of self-sacrifice in it. "'And now it's over. "'He won't get her, and if ever anyone deserves an exquisite thing like her, "'it's Harry Drinkwater. "'He can't see how pretty she is, of course, "'but he gets the essence of beauty that is more than physical.' "'We dropped the terms of peace and the League of Nations, "'and frankly discussed love.' I had already told her that, for me, notwithstanding all the conditions, there was no woman in the world but Vio. "'And for me,' she laughed, "'there's—there's there's Lohengrin.' My expression must have betrayed my curiosity, because she went on, "'Haven't I told you that it's all a matter for ourselves whether the blessings of existence are ours or not? And what blessing is greater than a good husband when one wants one?' When Elsa was in need of a defender, she went down on her knees— a method of expressing her point of view, and he came right out of the clouds. There's always a Lohengrin for every woman born, and there's always an Elsa for every man, and whether or not they find each other largely rests on their understanding of the source from which Elsas and Lohengrins come. "'Are you sure of your own Lohengrin?' she answered with a laughing air of challenge. "'Perfectly. Whenever I give the right call, I know he'll be on the way.' But this optimism didn't weigh with me. Knowing all I did of life and love, the simple performance of simple tasks began to seem to me the most satisfying food for men. From nearly all of those whom I have quoted, I made the synthetic leaning of bees in a garden of flowers, building my own little cell for my soul, and storing it. I needed such a cell. As May passed and June came in, there was much in the trend of public life to make those who had yearned and hoped and looked forward, cynical. The splendid spiritual freedom for which people had given their efforts and their sons was plainly not to be achieved. If the human race had moved higher, it was not directly apparent at Versailles or anywhere else in the world, while in America, the home of the ideal, the land in which so many of the heart-stirring watchwords had been coined, passion, selfishness, distortion, extortion and contortion were the chief signs of the new times. North of us, Canada, hitherto so tranquilly industrious, was threatened with internal convulsion. South of us, Mexico, which some of us had hoped was pacified, was prey to the new distress. For me, to keep my sanity amid all this conflict of forces, a little secret temple of my own became a necessity, and to it I retired. It wasn't much. Having built my shrine with what I had harvested from Drinkwater, Lydia, Mildred Averill, and the rest, I hid myself there with some half-dozen disciples. They were Bridget's boy, the Finns, two sons, and three or four of their chums whom they had brought in. Not only did their young affection give me something I sorely needed in my inner life, but I had the hope that, building on them, I was doing something for the future. Grown men and women were beyond my endeavours. These fresh souls, with their nearness to God, 
understood my faltering speech, which fell so far short of the ideals I was trying to interpret. They were simple ideas, connected with practical beauty. That is, with the museum as what we call our clubhouse, all man's treasures of material creative art were ours. These we were taking in their order, beginning with my own specialty of all things woven, from the crudest specimens of ancient linens up to the splendours of the tapestries, and going on to kindred and allied crafts. Not only art was involved in this, but history, biography, travel, romance, and everything else that adds drama to human accomplishment. To me, with the big voids in my life, it was the most nearly satisfying thing I knew to reveal to these eager little minds something of the wonders with which the world was full. To them, with their ugly homes, cramped outlooks, and misshapen hopes, it was, I fancy, much what the marvels of the next world will be to those accustomed to the dwarfed conceptions of this. Saturday afternoons were the days of our reunions, and we came to the last in June. It was a fatal day, the 28th, marking the fifth anniversary of the tragedy through which the new world began to dissociate itself forever from the old. As contemporary history was a large part of our interest, with the development of man's efforts stage by stage, the occasion naturally came in for comment. On that particular day we were in the great room, which, as far as I know, has no rival in any other museum in the world, where the whole history of ceramic art is visually unfolded in order from the crude, strong products of the Han, Tang and Sung dynasties in China, up through the manifold efflorescence of European art, to such American works as that of Bennington, Cincinnati and Dedham, which may be the forerunner of a new departure. We had come to that section of the room where were displayed the first representative pieces brought back from the East by merchants and ambassadors, and so voyages of discovery were in order. Marco Polo, Vasco da Gama, and the Dutch, English, and Portuguese explorers had been discussed, and I was in the act of giving to my boys the story of the origin of Delftware as an attempt to reproduce in abundance what the Oriental traders brought over only in small quantities. The specimens of Delft being on shelves but little above the floor, I was crouched in a half-sitting position, with the lads hanging over my shoulders. Not till I had finished this part of my exposition did I rise, to find, on turning, that a lady was looking on. Recognition on my part lagged behind amazement. Tall, slender, distinguished, dressed in black, and somewhat thickly veiled for a day in June, it was the sort of apparition to make a man doubt the accuracy of his senses. Before my lips could frame a word, she held out something toward me, saying simply, "'Billy, I came to bring you this.' The boys fell back, knowing by instinct that the moment was one of dramatic significance to me, and looking on, overawed. What I had in my hand I saw at once to be nothing but a copy of one of the New York papers that appear in the afternoon. That it contained some announcements affecting me went without saying, and a half-dozen terrors crowded into my mind at once. Without my knowing it, she might have got a divorce. She might have got a divorce and remarried. She might have lost her money. I might have lost mine. Someone near to us might be dead. I held the paper stupidly, staring at her through the veil, and opening the journal without seeing it. When my eyes fell on the first page, it was entirely a white blankness, except for a single word in enormous letters. Peace. My eyes lifted themselves to hers, fell to that one word again, 
lifted themselves to hers once more. She stood impassive, motionless, waiting. So, so they've signed it, was all I could find to stammer out. Yes, they've signed it. I, I thought you might like to know. Of course. Further than this superficial fact, I was too dazed to go, but I knew I must get rid of the boys. Turning to Patsy Bridget, I said, Patsy, could you take the other boys home and see them safety to their doors? Sure, Patsy answered with the confidence of fifteen. Oh, we don't want no one to take us home, the elder of the Finns boys protested. Me and me kid brother go all over New York, don't we, Bronco? Another lad spoke up. I come from my aunt's house in Harlem, right down to East 34th Street, all by myself and me little sister. It was Vaya who arranged the matter to everyone's satisfaction. With her right hand on one boy's shoulder and her left on another's, she said, in a tone of quiet authority, You see, this is the way it is. The war is over at last. They've just signed the peace treaty, and I've come to tell Mr. Harraby. But now that we've got peace, we've got to go on fighting, only fighting in a better way and for better things. Now, you're a little army, with Mr. Harraby as your commander-in-chief, like Marshal Foch. But under him you're all officers, according to your ages. Patsy is the general, and you're the colonel, she continued to the elder Finn boy. Oh, no, he's not, miss, one of the other lads declared tearfully. I'm older than him. He's only twelve going on thirteen, and I'm thirteen going on fourteen. This, too, was adjusted, and with a dollar from Vio for ice-cream sodas, the general traped out, followed by colonel, major, captain, and lieutenants, each keeping to his rank by marching in Indian file. I'd never before seen Vio in this light, and something new and human that had not entered into our previous relations suddenly was there. Left alone with her, I was in too great a tumult of excitement to find words for the opportunity. "'How did you know where to find me?' was the question I asked stupidly. "'Miss Averill told me. She said you'd be here with your boys, and she thought you'd told her you'd be doing this particular subject. I went through some of the other rooms first. "'I didn't know you knew her.' I didn't till till lately. I was interested in making her acquaintance because of things Alice Mapby said, and you said. What did I say? Oh, nothing of much importance, except for showing me that, that she was the one. What one? The one you spoke of uh, the last evening. That, that's what made me come to New York, Billy, to see if I could do anything to, uh, to help out. To help out? How? Oh, Biddy, don't make yourself dull. You know that nothing can be done unless I, or you, or one of us, should take the first step. I asked, with a casual intonation, How Stroud? Fire flashed right through the thickness of the veil, but she answered in the tone I had taken. I don't know. I haven't seen him since... since that girl... She's married. Oh, is she? I hope it's to someone... It's a someone as true blue as she. She is true blue, Billy. I see that now. She she must be to have wanted to do what she did for a woman like me who... She took a step or two toward one of the cases, where she pretended to examine the lustre of a great Moorish plaque. She's an erratic little thing, I said, finding it easier to talk of a third person rather than of ourselves. 
all pluck, all high spirit and good heart, scarum, scarum, and yet a great deal wiser than you'd think. She turned round for the plaque without coming nearer to me. I just want to say that the things she told me, the things she pretended to betray, were things I knew more or less already. I'd been coming to the same conclusions for myself, only I hadn't quite reached them. And then you came back, and everything was so strange, after I'd been in mourning for you. Given those princes a memorial in your name, I wish— I detected something like a sob. I wish you could make some allowances for me, Billy. The minute was a hard one for me, but I stood my ground. I make all allowances, Vio. I've no hard feelings whatever. She advanced toward me by a pace. Then will you do this for me? If I can find a way to to give you your liberty, will you will you marry Mildred Averill and and be happy? Then my heart was going wild. I knew my eyes must have been cold, as I said. I can't promise you that, Vio, for a double reason. First, I'm not in love with her, and then she's not in love with me. Oh, but I thought she was. Everybody says so. Who's everybody? Well, well, Alice Mountney. I can see how Alice Mountney might make that mistake. But it is a mistake, Vio, and please let my saying so convince you. I'll be quite frank with you, and say that I thought so once myself. I'll even go so far as to say that at one time, if everything had been different, it might have happened. But, but everything was as it was, and so... Well, the long and the short of it is that there's nothing in it, and I must beg you to take that as decisive. Then, then who is it? No one. I've found my work, a very humble work, as you've just seen. A very fine and useful work. I hope so, and I'm not not unhappy, especially. She moved along the line of cases, as if carelessly examining the contents. What's that? she asked, coming to a pause. Obliged to go close to her, I was careful not to touch so much of the surface of her clothes. It's just a cup and saucer, Ludwigsburg and old Rhine Valley factory, now extinct. They like those little fancy scenes. It seems to be a woman pleading with a man, doesn't it? Looks like it. It probably means nothing beyond a bit of decoration. And he seems so implacable, while she's down on her knees, poor thing. She looked round at me. Are you busy here still? Oh, there are always things to do. Why? I thought you might walk back to, to the hotel with me. I took up my watch, though unable to read the time even when I looked at it. I'm so sorry, but I'm afraid. Oh, no, you're not. There was a repetition of the catch in the tone that suggested a sob. Billy, aren't we, aren't we going to be friends? I couldn't soften toward her. I felt no springs of forgiveness. Why should you want to be friends with me? Because I can't help it for one thing, she cried, and for another. Turning away wearily, she began to move toward the door. Of course, if you don't want to, I can't urge it, and so must learn to get along by myself. Something in the last phrase prompted me to say, Is there anything specially wrong? No, only everything specially wrong. If you had come back to the hotel with me, I could have told you. Can't you tell me now? Is it about... about Stroud? 
Oh, no, Billy. Can't you forget about that? I have. He's dropped out of my existence. That was all a mistake, like the other things. What other things? All the other things. She pointed to the big word, peace, staring at us from a chair to which I had thrown the newspaper. Look at that. Doesn't it make all the last five years seem unreal? Like a nightmare after you've got up? Well, that's the way I feel now about... About... About me? Of course. I never should have thought it at all, only that Wolfe and Dick Stroud and even the military authorities. But at heart I didn't believe them. Do you mean that? She nodded without waiting for me to finish the question. But I want it very plainly, Vio. I'll tell you as plainly as you like, Billy, but... But not now. I'm, I'm too worried. But what about? Is it... Oh, everything! She burst out desperately. Money, for one thing. Didn't you see how shabby the house was and run down? The sobs began to come freely now and without restraint. And uh, Lulu Avery has a little boy, a perfect darling, a little Bobby. I'll go back with you to the hotel, I said quietly. Only don't, don't cry here with people coming in and out. She dried her eyes, drew down her veil, and took her sunshade from a corner. Picking up the paper she had brought, I folded it and slipped it into my pocket. I began to wonder if it might not prove a souvenir. "'Do you think your boys would like a day with those things?' she asked, with the slight convulsion of her throat that a child has after tears. "'I'm sure they would. I could, I could take them some day when you didn't want to go, if you'd let me. It's one of the few things I know something about.' "'I'm afraid it would bore you.' She paused for just an instant. "'Bore me? "'Billy, nothing will ever bore me again "'so long as you... you let me?' As she could say no more, we resumed our walk. Out in the open a boy rushed up to us, a Slavic creature with huge, questioning eyes. "'Peace, mister! Peace, miss! "'Buy one! Great historication!' They were like doves, all up and down the avenue, white, fluttering, bearing the one blessed magical word. They were in motor-cars, carriages, and on the tops of omnibuses, all white, all fluttering, all blessed, and all magical. Up and down and everywhere, the cry burst from hundreds of raucous little throats. Peace! 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 It's like coming out into a new world, isn't it? I said. It is a new world for me. Do you remember saying that day when you first came home that the new world made the war? Now it's made something else, in which it seems to me there'll be just as much struggle called for, only with a difference. Then the hard things were done to break us down. Now they may be just as hard, only they'll be to build us up. The East isn't farther from the West, is it, than those two motives? I've never wanted to build up anything in my life, but now I feel as if— once more we walked silently among the doves, listening to that throaty, lusty cry that was sheer music. Peace! 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 We had come to that avenue in the park, sacred to little boys and girls, when she said, "'He's a darling, Lulu Averill's baby, and they quite understand each other, now.' This second reference prompted me to give her a long, sideways look, but she did not return it. "'Perhaps,' I ventured, 
Oh, Billy. It was barely a sigh, but for the minute it was enough for me, as she pressed forward, with veiled profile set, like one gazing into the future. End of Part 3 Chapter 4 End of The Thread of Flame by Basil King